I'd like a uh, plain omelet, uh, no potatoes, tomatoes instead, a cup of coffee, and wheat toast. No substitutions. What do you mean? You don't have any tomatoes? Only what's on the menu. You can have a number two, a plain omelet. It comes with cottage fries and rolls. Now, I know what it comes with, but it's not what I want. Well, I'll come back when you make up your mind. Wait a minute. I have made up my mind. I'd like a plain omelet, no potatoes on the plate, a cup of coffee, and a side order of wheat toast. I'm sorry, we don't have any side orders of toast. I'll give you an English muffin or a coffee roll. What do you mean you don't make side orders of toast? You make sandwiches, don't you? Would you like to talk to the manager? Hey, Mac. Shut up. You've got bread and a toaster of some kind? I don't make the rules. Okay, I'll make it as easy for you as I can. I'd like an omelet, plain, and a chicken salad sandwich on wheat toast. No mayonnaise, no butter, no lettuce, and a cup of coffee. For number two, chicken salad sand. Hold the butter, the lettuce, the mayonnaise, and a cup of coffee. Anything else? Yeah, now all you have to do is hold the chicken, bring me the toast, give me a check for the chicken salad sandwich, and you haven't broken any rules. You want me to hold the chicken, huh? I want you to hold it between your knees. <laughs> you see that sign, sir? Yes, you all have to leave. I'm not taking any more of your smartness and sarcasm. You see this sign? Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 204, Five Easy Pieces. A movie I can say I definitely had never seen until COVID. I did pick up the criterion before that, but it was a blind buy. But since I've watched it, super in on it, the character almost shockingly relatable. This is a unique episode in the sense that it is a... Matt Pick. We got back-to-back Matt Picks coming up. Yeah, always controversial. (laughs) So, for those of you who are going to be disappointed by the next two episodes, (laughs) you'll know where to direct those complaints. Wait till till we get to my recommendations. (laughs) You might be wondering how a Matt Pick differs from like a normal episode. I don't really think much, because it's not like you wouldn't want to do the stuff that we usually do. I feel like if it's a a Matt pick, you are less likely to be into it and you will try to sabotage the episode. (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) I'm the only one with notes. I don't see your notebook. Yeah. (laughs) They certainly aren't in my head either. So I sent you a request via text message. This was months ago at this point where I'm like, hey, just give me a list of everything you'd like to do on this podcast before we stop doing it or before we die whichever these comes are the type first. of things you came back with not the godfather not scorsese not fincher not paul thomas anderson but these next two episodes plus we're going to be hitting some more of them yeah early next year 
I don't know. It's just movies that have been on my mind. Okay, fair enough. It's like pulling teeth to get Matt to contribute to the show. And so I have to like demand lists of things to do. I don't know. I, I am pursuing merch, though. Okay. Merch well, opportunities. I think the podcast itself should be the first thing that we worry about. And yeah. then everything after. No, I think we should clarify. I think you're pretty much on board with most of the stuff we do. Yeah. It's just that I sort of have to. I just need to be led to the water. Yeah, I have to, to like push what? it. To yeah. be like, all right, well, I guess we're doing this now and this now, and I've <laughs> taken over that responsibility. As I just feel like you I have like every responsibility. Yeah, you you like picking things and putting things in orders so much. Yeah, like, I, I try to, to get a balance. Yeah. Try to mix it up. Yeah, I'm trying to think about what have we done recently? What are we doing in the future? Let's not do too much of the same. We haven't done a classic '70s movie of this style in a while we've certainly yeah. done some 70s movies the exorcist and halloween come to mind but this is like that very of the moment late 60s early 70s counterculture feel yeah. to it where everything was changing in american movies well by the way I i'm also very much a, a shiny new toy syndrome type this movie has been on my mind since i watched it if i was trying to do the movies it's just like Whatever I watched most recently, I would be like, that's what we're doing. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. So we, before we jump into this episode, let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We yeah. thank you for listening. Almost a shocking amount of activity there these days. Yeah, it's been great getting reviews, reading people's comments. We're enjoying it. It's definitely uh, an exciting time for this yeah. up-and-coming show. <laughs> Always a lot of surprise in the, the comments that come through and the episodes that people cling to. Yeah, that's why we do it. We have a pretty wide variety of stuff, in my opinion. I do think that we would maybe like to do a little bit more obscure stuff, older stuff, foreign stuff, but that doesn't seem to track, so... We do have a tendency to get pulled back into the mainstream a lot, which is fine because there's yeah, a lot which of. Yeah, we also like. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff. This one is a little bit more off the beaten path, though. And we were talking before we started recording about it and how I think this movie is just as crucial, if not more so, than a lot of the other movies that came out around this time that get a lot more attention. And yet, I don't really feel like it has a huge following nowadays. And I would definitely say that most people under 40 aren't super familiar with it and definitely under 30 yeah for sure you're talking like only your big time cinephiles are getting into a movie like this and at this point i mean i'm calling this a heavily recommended movie but it's also like the end is just so insane that that's how they they would end a movie so not positive it's bleak you know it's not like the end of the mist or something but it's just so <laughs> it's not yeah it's not that crazy but but it just seems wild that this is where our journey ends it's a perfect ending for the character and this movie is very much a character study and it's a perfect ending for the feeling in the country at the time and this movie accomplishes something that is so hard to do and has so rarely been done throughout film history which is it's a reflection of what's happening in that moment as yeah. the moment's happening and it doesn't come out a year or two too late it's very much that feeling of going into the 1970s. It's a time period we've touched on several times before. Absolutely. It seems like we enjoy talking about it. But this is 
the post Midnight Cowboy, The Graduate, this is the big change, the new Hollywood wave, the American new wave, as they were calling it. This was a big sea change in American film. And yeah. it was finally catching up to the European counterparts that were so much further ahead in terms of coolness and I know um, uh, reality and, you know. It would be years past this before, like, the cell phone era took off. But there's definitely, like, an off-the-grid type feeling to this movie that just really makes me long for a time period other than the one we're living in. For those of you unfamiliar, and I'm sure some of you are, Five Easy Pieces came out in 1970. It was directed by Bob Rafelson, written by Carol Eastman, who is credited as Adrian Joyce and Rafelson. Carol Eastman was good friends with the movie's star, Jack Nicholson, and she wrote a few movies that he would appear in, including a Western a couple years prior to this, and then I think The Fortune, which was directed by Mike Nichols, and then some some other things. Rafelson was very much a part of the BBS, which was a small indie film production company that only made a handful of movies, but they were hugely influential in American film history, including Easy Rider and The Last Picture Show. Amongst them, I would put Five Easy Pieces right up there oh, yeah. with those two in terms of importance. And they all do capture a similar essence. People that were involved with that were Ray Fulson and Jack Nicholson and Dennis Hopper, amongst others. The budget for Five Easy Pieces was $1.6 million. It would go on to make eighteen point one at the box office. It got four Academy Award nominations, including Picture, Original Screenplay, Actor for Jack Nicholson, and Supporting Actress for Karen Black. Yeah, she definitely, I would say, a remarkable performance in this movie. Yeah, the acting in this movie is all pretty incredible. Also, the cinematography, Laszlo Kovacs, who I think yeah. ended up doing a bunch of like Peter Bogdanovich movies... Too. I, I don't know it, it it's well you have this like great landscape like this california you're kind of like out in these oil fields and stuff and then it almost feels like this road movie where you're going up the west coast all the way to washington and that it's so serene and beautiful once you get there the title comes from a book of piano exercises and the five piano pieces that appear throughout the film i think two are Chopin and maybe one Mozart. I don't really remember what Certainly, they are. Certainly uh, recognizable, I would say. I think a lot of people smarter than us are able to tie in the the pieces of piano music into the story yeah. and, and sort of different representation about what's going on. I don't really want to get into that. I don't really know a lot about piano. <laughs> Nor will I be able to. This movie is available as a standalone release from Criterion, but it also is a part of America Lost and Found. The BBS story box set, which I have and is awesome. From yeah. Criterion it has the last picture show, Easy Rider, <laughs> The King of Marvin Gardens. I always. A few it, others. It's been in my car a couple of times, but since I own some of the movies standalone, I, I never yeah. take the leap. But last picture show, I, I just am always hoping they just release that as a, as a standalone. Five Easy Pieces focuses on the character of Bobby Dupee, played by Jack Nicholson. This rootless, wandering, discontent. Easily annoyed. A rejection of societal norms and expectations, which... I would say almost shades of Jack Torrance in his how easily he's annoyed. Oh, yeah. I'm going to get to that in a second, how this would sort of inform a lot of Nicholson's other performances. But in the 1960s, when this story is first being 
put together and then eventually it comes out in 70 the idea of rejecting societal norms and expectations and sort of taking out off on your own and turning your back on where you've come from and what's expected of you it held a lot more power at that time i think in the 50 years that have passed it's more it's a little bit more more accepted and, and common I don't know if it's the norm, but it's more common. Now. Sure. People have, I guess it's not a shock if it happens. People have sort of embraced the idea that you don't necessarily have to follow a path that's been set out for you. But this movie and this character of Bobby Dupree meant so much to the people who were seeing this film in 1970 because it was speaking to a feeling that a lot of men in particular had. I think some women too, but this nomad existence, this dissatisfaction with society and never oh, yeah. finding happiness or or being content yes like i said relatable jack nicholson's performance is at the center of the film this blue collar anti-hero and i do feel like bobby dupee would be the template for many of his later performances kind notably of eccentric rp mcmurphy in one flew over the cuckoo's nest jack torrance in the shining uh, Frank Chambers in The Postman Always Ring Twice. Oh, yeah. Or Always Rings Twice. Even Melvin Udall in As Good As It Gets. And not to mention the influence the character had on countless other actors, as well as American men in general. I think this performance, this portrayal, this character brought to life has an almost immeasurable influence on other actors and how they create characters. I think there's so many other characters written in the template of this mindset. There's like so much that you get out of the backstory of this character without actually being told what it is. Yeah. And I think there's this anti-hero feeling to it because I think men relate to him so much that they can forgive his questionable decisions and bad behavior because I think a lot of people have felt the way that he's portraying on screen yeah and scenes that if you watch them now under the lens of 2020 in a world where we have quote-unquote karens bitching at customer service people or people refusing to wear masks in public or or whatever the stuff that annoys us you look at what he does in the famous diner scene the most (laughs) famous scene from this movie the scene that Probably some people know without even knowing exactly what the movie is. Okay, yeah. And now you'd be like, this dude is an asshole. It's not the waitress's fault. This is just the rules. But at the time... Yeah, he does come off as like kind of a sarcastic prick. In there that was scene. such frustration under the surface in this country because of the Vietnam War. Right. Because of the peace and love movement not working out the way people wanted. And, and we all know what a bummer the 70s turned out to be as we talk about a lot and so to see this frustration manifested in a guy who's just like fuck this these rules are stupid i don't care it's pointless that you're dicking me around about this dumb thing that you could just give me the fucking toast (laughs) people were like fuck yes give me more of that whereas now I think that guy is my hero yeah i think people now would view that scene differently because we now relate he's now kind of he's berating a worker who's not really yeah making this call which is not the point of the scene right the scene is to be pissed about the rules and to be taking it out against quote the man yeah yeah but when you view it now 
I think as a society, we've sort of changed our views on some of this stuff. And yeah, you're right. I think people would be more empathetic towards yeah. the waitress who's just the messenger, basically, of right. this dumb yeah. rule. Although I, I feel like if I was the waitress in that scene, I'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, that is a way around I, it. Let's I, just do that. Yeah, pretty much every job I was ever at, I would just cave. Oh, just yeah. Be like, right. I don't care, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Five Easy Pieces is not really an opinion or a comment or even a statement about this certain specific time of restless existence or this moment in time in American history. It's more of this living, breathing slice of it, something real enough to almost approximate a documentary because it was that much of a reflection of what was happening and how people were feeling. There's definitely a realism feel to the movie. So let's talk a little bit about Bobby Dupree, selfish, delusional, dishonest, narcissistic, White and privileged, highly intelligent, <laughs> Hard disloyal, bored, at, lost, depressed, yeah. dropout. Is he all of these things or none of these things or all a little bit of all of them? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everything. And it's hard to tell exactly what all was going on that led up to the to where we are. It doesn't matter. It, it seems like some some variation of exactly what this is for a long time now. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what caused him to want to do this. Uh, right, yeah. That seems like it goes way further back. And I but think I mean, his current, yeah, if you're saying like his current situation with Rayette, yeah, I think that's just what's happening at this given moment. Right, right. There's probably been other Rayettes in the three years that he's had since he left home. Yeah, and it seems like he moves probably fairly regularly. Yes. There's this simmering anger at the inflexibility of life, the absurdity of adherence to pointless rules, which is sort of fleshed out in that diner scene, but it comes up throughout. And sometimes you agree with Bobby yeah. about what should be more flexible and what's pointless, and other times you kind of are more on the fence and you waver. Well, sometimes his causes, it it, it feels noble or, or admirable, but I, I mean, there's other times where he kind of just seems like a complete sociopath. Yeah, but in reality, he's the opposite. Right. And I think we'll get to that scene towards the end, but I think that's why Rafelson really was adamant about including the scene where he talks to his father and he sort of breaks down. Yeah, because yeah. when we get there, we'll we'll talk about it in a little more in depth, but Nicholson did not want to do that scene. Oh, really? The big reveal? And I think it's because he was like, why should we see this underbelly of what he really feels yeah because he was more embracing that existence that's created throughout but that scene in particular it starts to show like the cracks yeah and it i mean it it lets you know that the depth is really there because i think if you don't see it you're still questioning that this movie there's this weight of expectation which i found similar to that in goodwill hunting except there's almost this internal debate at least amongst myself and maybe some other viewers as well, as to which is more noble. (laughs) Is it more noble to just honestly do what you want and say, fuck it, like Babu DP? Or is it more noble to grow up and be more mature and use this gift, as in Good Will Hunting? Because Will Hunting in that movie, he wants to almost be Bobby DP. He wants to just say, fuck it. I don't care that I'm super smart. I want to do this. And it's his friends... The Affleck character among them, who's like, no, you fucking idiot. You have something else that yeah. you could do. You don't have to like do this stupid shit that I have to do. Will, Will Hunting seems less cranky about it. 
Well, he's got the more straight up traditional trauma. Right. Whereas most people would probably consider Bobby's background to be just privileged and whiny, right. which is what makes the character so real, though. Because oftentimes, if at the end of the movie, the big reveal is, oh, he was molested or something, or oh, he was beaten up all the time or whatever, it would take all of the air out of everything you had seen before. Yeah. It would give this excuse as to everything rather than it not needing one. Because why should his dissatisfaction need an excuse? It's just as valid that he doesn't have one. It's like in young adult when you meet her parents and they're like super sweet. Yeah. And you're like, how is this? How is this the case? <laughs> yeah. Except even in that movie, I would say that she's like kind of exhibiting mental illness. And True. I don't yeah. know that Bobby is mentally ill. He's just not happy, which I guess some people consider that yeah. depression or something. But I he can't figure there's... out what he wants. Right. True. Which that in and of itself is kind of depressing. I know from experience. There's this overwhelming boredom with life and with a world that's already been mapped out. Right. To sort of Yeah, and he definitely just Green Day lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> he does just have this like I need to act out quality. Bobby Dupee works in an oil field in Kern County, California. He spends most of his time with his girlfriend Rayette, played by Karen Black, who is a waitress and a would-be country music singer. Also, Bobby spends time with his friend Elton, with yeah. whom he bowls, this gets guy. drunk, and philanders. Yeah, <laughs> this Elton, there's like an authenticity to this this guy, this performance. I mean, you just like 100% buy this dude. He just seems like yeah. someone that would be in this lifestyle. It seems like the 70s were peppered with character actors that felt way more authentic and real. Yeah. Oh, because I agree. now even the background performers in movies have perfect bleached yeah, teeth the, like that are the straight. friend right the friend character is yeah they look airbrushed Liam Hemsworth it's <laughs> <laughs> so like my go to for like side characters that are meaningless <laughs> yeah Elton would be played by Liam Hemsworth his girlfriend or wife Stoney would be like Margot Robbie <laughs> <laughs> one of the first scenes is Rayette being in Bobby's apartment. It's unclear if they actually live together or not. Well, I was thinking... He seems annoyed that she's there. Yeah, and there is the one scene where him and Elton have a night with the prostitutes, and I think it's at his place. Now, I mean, she could be working, but that seems risky. It's hard to tell if that's his place. I don't don't know for sure. Everywhere kind of looked the same. That's true. But it's not Elton's place. No. So it's like, I'm like, what do these guys have, like a flop house somewhere? I thought it was one of the, ch- the that, two that could be fair, yeah. Place, but I don't know. Rayette's just curled up in the sink in the bathroom. She sits on a lot of sinks in this movie. It's like her go-to. That's her thing. move. A lot of Tammy Wynette being played. Tammy Wynette songs. That's right. Yeah, throughout really. The movie. And she represents this constant annoyance to Bobby. Right. And I love the fact that I don't really know how to say this, but <laughs> I love the fact that she's smoking hot. Like, oh yeah, yeah. You're thinking, like, this guy's got it all. Well, and she's, like, obsessed with him, which yeah. I know annoys him, but... <laughs> yeah, and that's the whole thing that's funny, is that he should be happy with this, but he just can't stand her at all. <laughs> it is that thing where, no matter what, he's going to keep going back to her. Yeah, until he moves on. Right. And it seems like he is about to at one point, and then things there's, like, a monkey wrench thrown in. Oh, yeah. Because at least a couple of times... 
in the first half hour of the movie, she's threatening to kill herself if he ever leaves her and stuff. Yeah, which does make it problematic. He does seem like he has somewhat of a conscience because he's then reeled back in by this. He's right. not just like, okay, go ahead and leaves anyway. Not that that's the right thing to do, but... Early on, we see a bowling scene with Rayette and Bobby and Elton and his woman, Stoney. And this scene basically serves as a microcosm for yeah Bobby and Rayette's relationship. Just a, a sort of understand out. it all oh. here. <laughs> <laughs> and are reminded of some of our own oh situations. <laughs> That's the thing that we should say about this movie. We've already sort of implied and said outright that we relate to this character and I think a lot of guys probably do, but this movie, there are specific scenes in this movie <laughs> that hit so close to home. Yeah, you're like, just replace that bowling alley with a certain bar, and it's like, <laughs> spot on. No, it's just, you're almost like ashamed of like your own past behavior. As I often am. <laughs> By just watching how mean he is to oh, her. Oh, I know. <laughs> and yet, at the same time, you sort of understand why he's so annoyed, too. You do, yeah. <laughs> she rolls, like, only gutter balls. It's a bit much. And just can't get on the same wavelength with him. Not very chill. They just don't really say. seem like a good match. Like, he wants to be more quiet and laid back, and he cares about the game, and she's just gabbing away, and very oh God, bubbly yeah. personality. What a rough night out. <laughs> But during this trip, when Bobby stays behind to pay the tab, he meets Betty and Twinkie. <laughs> Two women that start hitting on him. Yeah. And he's sort of there to receive their attention. One of them played by Sally Struthers, who would That's right. very shortly be on All in the Family and go on to have like a little career. The other one I don't really think was ever in anything. Yeah, she looks good in this movie, though. And they f confuse him for someone that's in a commercial on TV, although it's hard to say if they're actually being serious. Is Sally Struthers Betty or Twinkie? She's Betty. Her real name was something else. Remember? Okay. She's yeah. like, my name's, I don't know, Polly, but they right. call me Betty or something. Yeah. It was very strange. <laughs> yeah. Which is somehow more weird than just having the name Twinkie. I even wanted to ask you. You're on the TV, aren't you? <laughs> Am I? On the TV? She said you're the guy that sells all the cars on TV. Uh, I might have sold a few cars. I told you. My name's Shirley, but they call me Betty, and her name's Twinkie. <laughs> Twinkie? Yeah, she's so Twinkie. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Well, Betty and Twinkie, it, uh, Sure is nice talking to you girls. I wish that I had some more time. That's a wig you wear, isn't it? Wig? Yeah. I told her it was you, but that you're wearing a wig, because on the TV you're mostly all uh, bald up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your little friend's real, real sharp. Well, I don't, uh, I don't wear the wig on TV, because if you're going to be out there in front of two and a half million people, you've got to be sincere. I mean, I like to wear it when I'm in bowling alleys and slipping around and stuff like that. I think it gives me a little class. What do you think? Oh, yeah, but uh, I can see a little bitty of the net up there. That's what give it away. <laughs> well, I, I wish I had more time to talk to you girls, but... Uh... While Bobby acts the part 
of a blue-collar laborer working in this oil field with Elton. He is secretly a former classical pianist who comes from an upper-class family of musicians. How much of this is a secret is sort of unclear because Rhea does comment at one point about his family of musicians, and he does play piano in one of the famous scenes in front of Elton. So it's not exactly like yeah. a secret. I'm sure it comes up in conversations, but it's like so removed from his family that it's just you know they're not around they're not he's not interacting with them although i i guess i don't know how often his sister is in los angeles when he goes to meet with her i don't know and it's unclear i don't really know where kern county is so i'm not sure how close he is to los angeles in yeah general. He, it seems out there yeah elton bobby betty and twinkie have a fun night together it seems like sort of an That's underwear right. party this is like one of the scenes where like the camera work is really cool too it's kind of going all over the room in different angles before finally settling on Betty for her little story about her dimple. <laughs> when I was four, just four years old, I went to my mother and I said, what's this hole in my chin? I saw this dimple in my chin in the mirror. I didn't know what it was. And my mother said, get what my mother says. She says, when you're born, you go on an assembly line past God. And if he likes you, he says, you cute little thing, and you get dimples there. And if he doesn't like you, he goes, go away. So about six months later, my mother found me saying my prayers. And I was going, now I lay me down to sleep. My mother says, what are you covering up your chin for? And I said, because if I cover up the hole, maybe he'll listen to me. I love how everyone knows sells that story and immediately just starts singing another song. <laughs> They're just like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> something's wrong here. Bobby and Elton aren't exactly the most responsible adults, the most trustworthy workers, and <laughs> at least once they get sent home off the job for showing up drunk. Yeah, well, they're constantly drinking in the car on the way there. And they get stopped in some traffic, and that's when... Oh, boy, do I relate to this, though. Nothing worse in life than sitting in traffic, not moving. I think they filmed this little sequence in an unfinished section of highway. Bobby gets out of the car, starts just, barking at a dog that's barking at him, yelling do, at people. Standing on someone's car, yeah. <laughs> looking down. I, I do like that part, though, because it's just like you're just looking and it's just cars forever. And so there's a piano in the back of somebody's truck, like a big moving truck kind of a thing that has like an open air back. And he hops up into the back of the truck and starts playing piano as the traffic finally starts to move. Well, yeah, it's like interwoven with people laying on their horns and like shouting. Yeah. It's just like so much noise. One of the things that you you can take away from this opening section of the movie is the contrast between Bobby and Rayette's life, more, more specifically Bobby because he's the one who's reticent and keeping it from turning into Stoney and Elton's, which is where the contrast is, because Stoney and Elton have these little kids. They live in a trailer. Stoney, a pretty big television fan. They've settled into these domesticated lives that just horrify Bobby. Yeah, although Elton has quite an underbelly. Turns oh out. yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. He turns out everything he's been sort of building up as his life is potentially a lie. But yeah, this is exactly what bobby's trying to avoid right is the screaming kids sitting there he's not the only one watching this tv 
I know. This is this movie. It's like <laughs> holy shit. This is like exactly how I feel. <laughs> it just seems like such a nightmare. <laughs> Elton tells Bobby that Rayette is pregnant because Rayette has confided in him and Stony rather than tell Bobby outright. Which seems like probably a good call on her part. I'd she may so. seem like a dumb dumb occasionally, but she at least understands that Bobby's probably not going to react well to this news. That's right. And he doesn't. Yeah. No. <laughs> and him and Elton get into it for a minute because Elton's basically like, Look, it's I can't not believe you're not going to do the right yeah. thing. Because Bobby doesn't really say it, but I guess the implication is he's just going to be like, well, fuck this. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm not going to deal with this. That's right. Elton obviously has kind of a questionable moral compass anyway, but he's trying to convince. Yeah, because shortly after this, Elton is immediately arrested because (laughs) he's apparently jumped bail on some previous armed robbery charge of a gas station or something. He's very nonchalant about the whole thing, actually. (laughs) Yeah, he's almost, like, annoyed, like, how... Oh, they found me. It's such bullshit that they would still be interested in this. It's, like, been a year. (laughs) (laughs) Like, why would they still be following me? And he's led away. Well, our hero kind of dodges a bullet here, though, because he does attack a police officer. Yeah, but they're not uniformed, and he doesn't know that they're police. Yeah. And that's how, and Elton's like, yeah, just leave him alone. Right. And they're like, all right, whatever. Yeah, so this whole scenario, all of this information that Bobby's just learning now throws a wrench into his plans because, of course, he didn't want to impregnate Rayette. He seems like he can barely stand her. He yeah. doesn't want to be tied to one place or tied to her. Seems like he could have made some other decisions to maybe avoid getting into this predicament. And the second thing is Elton gets arrested. And so... <laughs> That's it. That's my only friend. Yeah. He's obviously not... He quit the job right before Elton gets arrested. There's no one that's going to be there to, to pick up the pieces for Rayette. And so it sort of sends him off on his own little journey, which ends up taking him to LA in the meantime as we said unclear how far of a drive this is they do show him driving on a highway for a minute I don't know maybe a couple hours yeah that seems reasonable he tracks down his sister Partita who's played by Lois Smith who also was grand from True Blood (laughs) that's pretty wild still active in some TV shows everyone in this movie is either old or dead yeah it's, That's what happens when you're talking about a movie from in the, 50 years ago. I mean, everyone in the movie kind of looks old in the time that the movie takes place. Not not like old, old, but... Yeah, I think Nicholson was like in his early 30s already. Okay, yeah. Because now he's like in his early 80s, and this was 50 years ago. But Jack Nicholson at 30 looked like a 40-year-old. Yeah, he's starting to lose the hair on top a little bit. That's one of the takeaways from just tracking Nicholson's career throughout the 70s into the 80s and stuff. There's just not a leading man today that you would have with a hairline like Nicholson's. There's not an actor that would look like Gene Hackman or Angelica Houston or (laughs) Shelley Duvall with her teeth. Everyone has to look the same now. And it's very boring and the acting suffers in my opinion because you don't really feel like these are real people anymore. They're just these airbrushed perfect looking people yeah i don't know if we've mentioned this topic before it's just boring yeah and you'd rather see people that look how nicholson looks in this movie he's a handsome guy but he's clearly already losing his hair in his early 30s something he's got sort of a wild look to to him really (laughs) yeah that's right 
Yeah, well, he always does, and that's why yeah. he was passed over for things like The Exorcist or why Stephen King didn't want him to be cast in The Shining. He's always sort of got a sinister vibe <laughs> yeah, that's to right. his look. Something that I, I'm not ashamed to admit I'm a little jealous of. I wish people were like... <laughs> I think you look more sinister than you <laughs> are aware of. Okay. <laughs> people have been talking. Yeah. So Partita, she's also a pianist. She's in the midst of a recording session. Tita tells Bobby that their father, from whom Bobby is estranged, has suffered two strokes and urges him to return to the family home in Washington. Now... I doubt you picked up on this, but one of the recording engineers here was the embarrassing drunk father from private school. Shockingly, I did not put that together. <laughs> not wow, Betsy Russell's dad, the one who ends up with there's the multiple sex ed drunk dads. The other one. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, I was like yeah. talking about how mortifying it would be because he was creeping on the I do yeah the girls and he was like going under the table and he was just like a complete mess yes that is the dude wow. who's doing the recording session <laughs> <laughs> I only noticed because when I was scrolling through IMDB his like little picture his main picture is from private school this actually like, takes place in the same universe as private school what and that is though? the same guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's kind of a dick to Tita he's yeah. so annoyed with her I, I get the sense that a lot of people are mean to her she seems like easily pushed around. And also similarly to Rayette, potentially annoying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say she's bringing it on herself. I but... mean, she's kind of having to put a full court press on this older male nurse. It's difficult for her to get attention. Bobby agrees to come up, but only for one week at the very most. So he returns back home, ends up fucking Betty, Sally Struthers. Just an absurd scene. In the middle of nowhere you're not really expecting to cut to this yeah i guess it's supposed to be a reminder of what a shitbag he is because he knows that his girlfriend is pregnant and now he's still carrying on that's with true some floozy. Yeah. that but, is the purpose of the scene it does seem kind of wild because it's like the a middle of the day session i guess too. she's naked or something yeah. but he's like holding her up and they're like spinning around a room yeah and she's this like is again moaning. they kind of do wild camera work in this scene too yeah, the most unrealistic sex I could imagine. I don't even know what's happening during most of it. <laughs> yeah, I would it's agree. insane. The interesting thing, though, and I guess this might as well point this out now because it essentially never happens throughout the whole movie. I don't think there's ever a scene where Rayette and him talk about her being pregnant. Does she ever say it to him? I don't think so. I don't. Yeah, I guess not in this scene whenever he's telling her that he's going up north. It doesn't come up there. That would be it, I, I would think. Yeah, it's just never really discussed. Well, I guess she still doesn't really want to tell him. So does he have plausible deniability at the end? I think so. <laughs> Even though it's bullshit because he, he does know. He doesn't really know, though. He's just <laughs> going off some shit that Elton said. Which... Yeah, Elton is unreliable. He yeah. robbed a gas station. That's right. <laughs> but his sister's telling him, Dad's probably going to die. He's like had a couple strokes or whatever. And I mean, even after all this, he's like pretty reluctant to go see his dad. So you don't get the sense that things are great. He just want to get back sucked home. back into that world. Yeah. All these pretentious musicians. Rayette guilts Bobby into asking her along on the trip up north oh, yeah. to Washington. And the previous threat of suicide still weighing heavily on Bobby. So he's like, all right. Uh, yeah, right. And so he does ask her to come along. But I, I do feel like this was a moment where it's like if he left, I, I just feel like there was a good chance he was never coming back. Oh, yeah, and that she knows that. Right. That's why she's yeah. acting like this. This movie 
is basically three separate things. There's the opening in Kern County. There's the road portion, right, which introduces a couple of other characters, and then there's the section in Washington at his family's estate on this island, and that's like the three parts of the film. They're all about the same length, yeah, because it's like a ninety approximately minute movie that's right and nice and tight each part is probably about a half hour or so on the drive bobby and rayette pick up two stranded gay women wrecked on the side of the road i'm a little surprised you don't want to talk a little bit more about him (laughs) being guilted into taking her along that i i have just had some of those moments in my life let's just say that (laughs) hard time sticking to my guns when being pressed with uh well that makes sense because you're much more of a pushover i think yeah (laughs) You're just like... I would have just been like, I'm leaving. Yeah, right. I'm going to Washington, then probably Alaska. See ya. I know it's maybe kind of disgusting, but I would have been like, I dare you to tell me you're pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have said that, but yeah, that right. would have been the implication. That, that would have like, been like the game of cat and mouse it. that was being played. Yeah, It's like, until you say it, you're, say not, it, you're it. not getting invited. Right. So, <laughs> so whatever yeah. you want. <laughs> but yeah, once they pick up these two lesbian... I, I guess they're, they're hitchhiking because of a car accident. Yeah, they've wrecked their car on the side of the road. So after this whole thing to, seems suspect, but I mean, obviously it couldn't have been planned. It just seems no, weird. No. It just yeah. feels weird, it's, though. It's right? just the staging of a small budget movie. Yeah. You know, they they just kind of turn a car on its side. They don't really like wreck it. it. It looks like there probably would have been an injury because how did the car even get like that? Uh, right. But, yeah. Yeah, they come along them pretty early on in the trip. It is kind of a weird move that he is invested in helping them well i think that's supposed to be the juxtaposition of him not even wanting to bring rayette and then yeah is I, I need someone anyone else in this car to talk more to. than happy to invite them into the car these two are headed for alaska there's terry played by tony basil of mickey fame yeah the song oh, oh wow. mickey what that's a right. pity yeah and she's the quiet reserved one <laughs> and then there's palm played by a woman named Helena Callia Notes. Not maybe? as quiet. Oof. I think Nicholson wanted Janis Joplin for this part, although I don't believe it was ever offered to her, which would have been interesting and would have maybe even added like a whole other dimension to this movie. Because I don't. Yeah, I'd say so. Don't really know if Janis Joplin appeared in movies as an actress. I, I really don't know. I'm not aware of that happening. Palm launches into various rants diatribes and monologues about the evils of consumerism (laughs) and how disgusting people are and gross that's right really we think we're jack nicholson we're actually these two lesbians (laughs) it's rough and she always ends it with being like i don't even want to talk about it after she she just talked about it for like (laughs) 10 minutes there's a lot of hilarious stuff tucked into these little moments especially rayette's reactions to palm going off on these things right. just like the eyes and faces that rayette's making in the front seat listening to this i have to say on a road trip this would be pretty unbearable palm yeah. is so annoying so how far are you guys going i think maybe we you need to get off at the next turn i feel like this has to be intentional this is almost a parody of a version of bobby yeah i way. agree it does Someone seem who's like supposed that right. to be a parody of these hippie types that are left over that are so angry and dissatisfied, but this is It's about the fight against the man. <laughs> this is the more realistic version where yeah. they just kind of are rambling on and on and everyone's sort of annoyed with it as compared to Bobby and his quiet 
simmering rage. (laughs) (laughs) But for as annoyed as Bobby gets with Rayette, he doesn't really seem to care that Palm just talks and talks and talks. Yeah, I know. During this portion, it almost seems like he's a lot more easygoing than most other sections of the movie. I guess it's you're right. It is just a constant distraction from his annoyance with Rayette just to have these other people in the car. And so it's the four of them together that have this famous restaurant scene where Bobby wants a side of wheat toast and they won't do it, which seems insane. (laughs) I know. I know this is a famous scene. I know it's iconic, and so people aren't really thinking. And maybe things were different in the 70s, but it seems like it should be a weirder request. I had a similar situation like this happen at a Cracker Barrel. because with toast? Yeah, I don't think that they would give me a side of toast there. Like you got to get like grits or just you specifically. Yeah. Everyone else was getting them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm wrong. It just seems like toast would be the easiest. I do agree side. with you, which I feel like is why I was having a fit about it <laughs> at Cracker Barrel. This scene came from an incident that occurred where a bunch of these actor writer people hanging out together would hang out in a diner in Los Angeles for hours and hours and hours and nicholson shows up one time what i want my life to be and orders a cup of coffee and so he just shows up with the coffee and he's only been there for a few minutes but then the waitress comes up and flips out on everybody and it's like you people have to leave you've been here for hours and hours and nicholson had just gotten there so he flipped out and like cleared the table (laughs) just like bobby ends up doing in this scene and so they sort of incorporated that but instead of just being like kind of a random confrontation between two people, like the real life event, this fictionalized version ends up representing so much more, which is what we were talking about at the beginning, about sort of the ongoing rage in the country against meaningless rules, stupid things that didn't yeah. make sense. It's kind of just the idea of like... Red tape. Why are you just blindly following this? Like, have you ever stopped to think if this actually makes sense? That's you kind have of the a toaster. Idea. Yeah. You have bread. This isn't hard. Palm loves it, and she's... <laughs> <laughs> Eating she's, it up. Yeah, complimenting it. Although I like when she, like, tries to say something in the middle, and he's just like, shut up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then they're driving later, and Palm's just going on and on about it, and the only thing that Bobby can say is, well, I didn't get my toast, though. So Yeah, so not a win. Who cares? Still a net loss. This scene is another microcosm, of course, of the whole thing in general. Whereas the bowling scene was a microcosm of him and Rayette's relationship, this is like a snapshot of who he is and what his life is like on a daily basis. And it seems like it would probably be exhausting in a lot of ways to be Bobby Dupee. Yeah, to, I, to feel aggrieved and angry all the time rather than just shrugging your shoulders and being like, okay, well, I guess I can't get toast. What do you mean it seems like it would be that way? <laughs> this scene was a huge hit with audiences at the time, a voice against the frustrating madness, a pushback. He doesn't get the toast, but he's not going to put up with yeah. the bullshit. He's made his point. I also am just like, it, it does seem like you can basically get away with doing a lot more <laughs> You're just making a scene in this restaurant. I know he's not doing a ton of damage, but he is doing damage, and it's like then you're just like driving away. No harm. Well, they'd have to like hold you until yeah, the police right. came, so what are they going to do? I know. What a better time. 
now there's like do. people on the internet still trying to figure out like who who this guy was that made this scene in the restaurant and there's like a documentary about finding him <laughs> yeah like they just finally after all these years decoded one of the zodiac's messages i saw and, that and <laughs> people are breaking down who cleared this table at a denny's <laughs> They film this at a Denny's, although oh, it doesn't nice. look like how Denny's look now. No. So 33 years later, the Alexander Payne film about Schmidt, there is a deleted scene where Nicholson's character is at a Dairy Queen, and he wants them to mix like Snickers and M&Ms or something. I forget okay, what they yeah. are. In one blizzard. He's like, just put the other one in there, too, and they like won't do it. Oh, boy. Yeah. And he just accepts it because he's this old man. Okay. And it's definitely like a nod, a nod to that scene. Yeah. I, I could see why they cut it, though, because it doesn't really accomplish anything other than just being a nod to another movie. Right. It doesn't really further the story of About Schmidt very much. But, yeah, it's a fun little scene to check out. It's probably on YouTube, too, in addition to being on the Blu-ray. So they arrive pretty close to the family estate. They're up in Washington. I feel like this is a legendary move. They get rid of the other two, unclear where they end up. Him being like, we're almost to my family's house. You're not going. I got to go check out the scene, see what's going on there. Yeah. I got you this hotel room. This never happened to me or anything, but it definitely felt like it could have. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, he's embarrassed by Rayette's lack of polish. So Bobby registers her in a motel and leaves her there before finishing the trek alone to the family home in Puget Sound. I mean, you are like, what is she going to do at this hotel? For days. Yeah. It's not even a hotel. It's right. just a room. It's a motel. That's right. There's nothing there except like a TV, which probably yeah. has two channels. Oy. And this whole last portion of the film is definitely a story of a man caught between two worlds. And you can sort of see the cracks now in this exterior. because Oh, sure. The Bobby Dupree that made that scene in the diner about the fucking toast would not give a shit about what these assholes would think about Rayette. Right. In fact, you would almost think that he would want to take it as a badge of honor to be like, look at this woman I'm spending. She- <laughs> look at this dope that I knocked up. Yeah. One of the, th- <laughs> the, the Matt Crosby story. <laughs> yeah, it's my parents. The idea of... A guy who grew up on Beethoven spending his time with a woman that exclusively listens to Tammy Wynette. It's sort of this culture clash, and you would think that he would be more into it. And this is a revelation of a slight cowardice, this lack of commitment to the character he's built of himself. To be like, I'd rather just hide you here. If there was any indication at all that he was doing it to spare her feelings that would be different but there really isn't and he doesn't seem concerned with her feelings that much so yeah we know that he's doing it for himself i do think that it's a it's a really fascinating last portion of the movie to see this side of him now where he is now stuck between two things where he's hiding what he is while at the same time wanting to shove it in their faces but not being able to do it and then he can't decide between protecting Reyes' feelings versus these other people. You know, he's just all over the map now. Yeah, I know. But it is such a weird scene when he gets there. And then, of course, there's this whole curveball of some chick being there that he's like interested in who is with his brother. So Bobby just sort of shows up at the house. Tita is giving their father a haircut. By the way, they, they live on like this island. Yeah, they have to take a ferry to yeah. the island. Yeah, the Puget Sound. 
Partita giving the father a haircut, and there is no recognition or reaction at all from the old man. And I was definitely getting vibes of Grandpa from Silent Night, Deadly he Night. He looks like him, doesn't he? Yeah, he looks like him, and just the no reaction. Oh, yeah. We meet Catherine Van Oost, played by Susan Anspach, and she is with Bobby's brother, Carl. And Carl, this guy, can we say it? Such a cuck. Yeah, well, he's sort of just this doofus. Yeah. Catherine is the antithesis of Rayette. She's a young pianist engaged to Carl, who's a violinist who mostly is now unable to play thanks to a ridiculous neck injury where he like, was ran on a into bike a car. and ran into a yeah. parked car or yeah, something. Yeah, he's just such a goof. Carl's not really much of a factor in the story itself. It seems like the other characters do whatever they want, regardless of Carl's existence. This is just like an odd scene at this house there's definitely some dysfunction but all the characters that are at the house are just kind of bizarre yeah it's a troubled scene you have (laughs) you're almost like the dinner scene almost seems like it's out of texas chainsaw massacre a father who doesn't speak and is just sort of sitting there with a blank expression and he's accompanied at all times by this giant male nurse (laughs) yeah then you have carl the son who's sort of a doofus but not nearly as terrible as some of the people that will show up later. Right. He's well-meaning, but kind of dumb. And his and he was able to pull this pianist babe. Fiance, Catherine. I think at one point she does sort of reveal a darker history. Yeah, I mean, well, a this is like her second, her second marriage. Something like that, yeah. And Catherine's hanging around. And then you have Tita, who seems like a sweet person but feeling sorry for herself maybe maybe a little in over her head as yeah. far as like running this whole household it seems <laughs> like a whole so, property yeah. and no one else which i was thinking back to when he first goes to see her and she offers bobby to ride up with her and he refuses or i guess respectfully declines but i'm just like man this chick just driving up the coast by herself how often was she making that trip back and forth between la and washington who knows it was a different time. It was. People were just... It's like the graduate just driving back and forth between LA and San Francisco frequently. People were just more nomadic. Yeah. That speaks to the restless, rootless nature of Bobby and this movie. It's less just like... People were just moving around. Less Netflix series to get caught up on. Yeah, there was just nothing to do. Yeah. So people just had to make stuff to do, like driving. Right. <laughs> Carl's such a doofus, though, that... The arrival of Bobby is an obvious jolt of energy into Catherine's life, and it's not long before they're making eyes at each other over the dinner table. There's like a 10 to 15 minute portion of the movie that is just them flirting and basking in their own mutual attraction for each other. Not a whole lot of plot, just sort of talking and dancing around this idea that something could happen a little bit without saying it. He's like, well, when are you free? And she starts listing all this shit she has to do. And you're like, all right, well, she's sort of trying to put him off. But then she's like, the day after tomorrow, I'll be free. It's like, free for what? Yeah, it clearly yeah. she's just interested. There's no other explanation for why she would say this. Yeah. Because she makes it a point to be like, Carl has his physical therapy. He won't be on the island. So, so I can so... hang out with you and something could happen. Hey. <laughs> no question from either of these two if whether what they're pursuing here is wrong. You get the sense from the allusions to the past and some of the pictures on the wall and the fact that all of the children are these musical prodigies 
there is a very Royal Tenenbaums vibe to this I agree movie with that. Where it's yeah. like we're coming into the story past the prime of this family. Yes. There was a celebrated potential future that just didn't happen, and now we're stuck in this disappointing aftermath. Right. <laughs> Some people just not living up to expectations. I think all three of the children have sort of handled these expectations poorly, but in their own unique ways, yeah. where... Tita seems like sort of this timid shell of a person. Carl seems like a moron, and yes. Bobby rejected it completely and ran away from it. Uh, this is certainly something else I was relating to for the movie, because it's like, at one point in my life, that was something that I struggled with. <laughs> certainly not living up to expectations, but then you get to a certain age, and you're like, well, you know, I'm doing a podcast, that's true. So it all worked out. Eli Roth listened to it one time. That's right. <laughs> That's what they'll put on my how many? Stone. How many of your friends have a podcast that Eli Roth listened to? I, I can't think of any. <laughs> There's a back and forth between Bobby and Catherine, some sexual tension. Eventually, this day after tomorrow arrives, and he plays piano for her. I just think it's such a And then immediately crazy... embarrasses her. <laughs> oh, yeah. When she responds emotionally to his playing. And is this just him i don't know trying to nag her or something because this scene makes it seem like i I don't know are you supposed to take it that he really feels nothing i guess that's up for debate i think he wants to feel nothing yeah that's what i think he doesn't want to be this person he's trying to make himself believe that he doesn't care about music and he doesn't care about doing this but it seems like he probably does Either way, after he completely makes a fool of her, she's still in. Yeah, they fight a little and then immediately have sex since Carl is off the island at the time. What does it have to be with you? Grim and serious? Look, you played. I honestly responded. And you made me feel embarrassed for having responded to you. Wasn't necessary. Yeah, it was. I faked a little Chopin, you faked a big response. (laughs) I don't think that's accurate. Up till now, all I've been getting from you is meaningful looks at the dinner table and a lot of vague suggestions about the day after tomorrow. I am not conscious of having given you any particular looks. And as for the day after tomorrow, this is the day after tomorrow. And I am unfortunately seeing you. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'd like to take a bath. What the hell do you want? I'm getting some bath oil. Some bath oil? Mm How about some avocado or some of this or some of this jasmine? How about this? How about this? What are you doing screwing around with all this crap? I do not find your language very charming. It isn't. It's direct. I'd like you to leave so that I can take a bath. Is that direct? Is that what's important to you, serious? Yes, that's what's important. Okay, let's be serious. Sit. No, don't do that. Shut up. No inner feeling. Are you not afraid of anyone else stumbling upon this scene? I guess not. Yeah, certainly not dad puts a little pep in his step yeah and they're sort of just 
running around playing grab ass for like the next 12 hours or whatever till the next morning making an arrangement to even fuck again and then out of the blue completely out of money at the motel rayette arrives at the estate unannounced yeah and that is something where you're like it seems like it would have been a difficult time trying to get to this house like find it you got to take a ferry there yeah, I did think about that, too. I, I wondered if she looked it up in, like, the, what is that, the white pages or I something? It certainly or wasn't Google Maps. I know that. If she just asked. Yeah. Because it does seem like people would know There's this some house. local fame. Yeah. Her presence infuriates Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> She's talkative, unreserved, slightly Kind uncouth. of a hit, though, I feel like. Kind of. Somewhat he, of a hit. Bobby's embarrassed in front of Catherine because... It's like this revelation of, hey, I, he I'm dates trash. <laughs> You're probably right, but I took it to be just that she exists at all. Like, oh, yeah. there is this other woman that I just left out of the narrative, even though we well, know Catherine like, cheated on You're his with brother. my brother. Yeah. Who, who do you have to judge? They're yelling that at each other <laughs> in front of Carl. I'm, like, getting mad on his behalf. So Bobby's upset and embarrassed. She represents a monkey wrench and whatever his plans were with Catherine, but which also was never going to go anywhere. Anyway, I mean, I think that's the thing. This well, was he gets self- these fantasies yeah, in his head right. about his next move. But everything that he tries to do is like self-destructive. This is not a good way to start a relationship. So he's trying to find time to talk to her and he can't really track her down. And there's like the two cars passing, oh, trying to get onto oh. the ferry. That scene gives me so much anxiety. Cause it's like, a, I hate sitting in traffic, but B, Oh, I hate holding up traffic. Everyone's beeping yeah, while oh, he's God, trying to talk the to idiot. her. Well, it, like, oh, that that's just a horrible feeling for me. Catherine is basically like, don't worry about it. Who cares? And then she's like, I'm going to pick up some friends of ours. And so they bring these academic, pretentious blowhards to the house. Oh, yeah. Particularly this... one woman who ends up ridiculing Rayette Uh-oh. in a way. Certainly sets him off. Rayette is so sweet but also kind of dim so she doesn't really even seem to know that she's being ridiculed even if she did i don't really even know if she would care she just she seems to only care about if it's bobby him. Yeah. yeah what about love what about it wouldn't you say that more ill has been done in the name of love than in the name of abomination no no i wouldn't well you are a romantic Catherine, and once more about to be married so you can be excused from objective discussions. But ask Carl. Ask him if even the institution of marriage is completely free from it. Ask him. I think these cold, objective discussions are aggressive. Excuse me. That's reactive. But if I may say, without dampening the spirit of your adventure... You haven't dampened my spirit, Samia. Excuse me. Well, I should hope not. But I want to say, though, it's still open to some disagreements. <laughs> I know I was crazy after her. We left her at some friend's house and she got squashed flat in a tortilla right outside their mobile home. There. Do you see what I mean? The choice of words juxtaposed with the image of a fluffy kitten. The enchantment of 
words, squashed, flat, etc., etc. Yeah, she was. Well, perhaps. But it was just what I was trying to point out. Don't sit there pointing at her. I beg your pardon. I said don't point at her, you creep. But I was just telling about... Where the hell do you get the ass to tell anybody anything about class or who the hell's got it or what she typifies? You shouldn't even be in the same room with her, you pompous celibate. Carl, this is really too much. Of course, calm down. You're totally full of shit. You're all full of shit. Bobby takes this as an opportunity to explode with anger (laughs) on this woman, seemingly coming to Rayette's defense... This scene is very interesting to me, and I think a little bit more... Well, I think he just hates these people. ...complicated than it seems on the surface. Yes, that's the biggest part. Yeah. This is what he was running away from in the first place. These people pontificating with their ridiculous theories and <laughs> just sounding so pretentious. But this woman also made Catherine mad first, and Catherine is just like, that's I'm right. leaving the yeah. room. And so that... It's potentially a trigger as well. Doesn't help keep him calm, that's for sure. So then when she is sort of mocking Rayette lightly, it's not... Whose house is this, woman? Get out of here. Why are you ridiculing the people here? Well, that's the thing. It's so light and subtle. It's not like she's (laughs) straight up insulting her, but she is being insulting. It's it's sort of a fine line there, but... Fair. Bobby explodes seemingly coming to Rayad's defense i do think that there's a lot of self-loathing too because it's reminding him of what he ran away from but he's also upset at himself because he's realizing how hypocritical he is yeah because he's kind of that way too he's protective of her Rayette, but he's also still so annoyed by her and clearly doesn't see a future with her but this is his inner conflict i brought her here she's with me so he does feel some responsibility yeah. yeah to be protective and then also the thing with Catherine, because immediately after he storms out of the room and away from this scene and it, you have to also point out he may be alerting raya to the fact that she was being ridiculed it's unclear if she even really knew that she was yeah. he then immediately is trying to track down Catherine, though so can you even give him props for standing up for raya i don't know <laughs> it's <laughs> because hard. he immediately is like Catherine. yeah i know <laughs> I need to talk to you, yelling it in front of everyone. (laughs) Oh, God. Just so embarrassing. Bobby then storms from the room in search of Catherine and ends up finding his father's male nurse giving Partita massage. (laughs) His frustration and anger and inability to change anything meaningful is represented here when he picks a fight with this giant nurse who easily subdues him. (laughs) And it's ultimately more embarrassing that the nurse doesn't beat him up. Yeah, I know. That's what's so embarrassing. It's he's like just he's trying to such calm a down. non-threat yeah. that he's just got him in a headlock and won't let go. Why does this set him off? He feels like this guy is taking advantage of his poor sweet sister. I guess, but it's just an excuse to, yeah. to vent this rage that he's feeling. that a, a Feeling towards that woman, feeling towards Rayette, feeling towards his inability to make it happen in the way that he wants with Catherine now. And it's not that he's really in love with Catherine. It's just that this is his new fancy for the moment. That's right. And he's a guy who's always concerned with what's my next move. Yep. How do I get out of what I'm involved with and get on to the next thing? Yes. So he makes a last gasp attempt to convince Catherine to leave with him. She's pretty pragmatic about the whole thing. Yeah. Well, then eventually she's like, I'm trying to let you down easy. Yeah. The truth is you can't ask for love when you don't love yourself or anything at all. You're not worthy 
of any real love, basically, because you're such an ass. Yeah. <laughs> and so she's admitting, and this is, you know, this is... He's a, like, well, what was all that business upstairs, then, in your room? Well, it's a recurring thing that we see in books and movies and shows and whatnot, where there's a character who's sort of resigned to, yeah, I'm not as happy with... Right. Or I'm not as satisfied in a lot of ways with Carl, but Carl is this stability. This is more... Which I need. It's blue is the warmest color. It is, It's yeah. the scene in where she's like, yeah, the sex isn't as good with this new woman, but the relationship is more stable and And I just real. need that, yeah. And she's like, yeah, I can't be with you. So what, then, what do you think is going to happen here? We're going to run away together? She can see through him. Yeah. She knows there is no future. He right. doesn't have any... There's plan. no prospects. And eventually he would just get tired of whatever's going on with her and then move on to whatever because he's not ever going to be satisfied. Yeah. Bobby then tries to talk to his unresponsive father. He, like, wheels him out into a field. <laughs> Dad, I just need you to hear something from me. <laughs> I move around a lot. Not because I'm looking for anything, really, but because I'm getting away from things that get bad if I stay. Auspicious beginnings, you know what I mean? I'm trying to imagine you your half of this conversation. <clears throat> My feeling is, I don't know, that uh, if you could talk, we wouldn't be talking. It's pretty much the way that it got to be before I left. Are you all right? I don't know what to say. <laughs> Tina suggested that we try to, but I don't know. I think I think that she feels that we've got some understanding to reach. She totally denies the fact that we were never that comfortable with one another to begin with. The best that I can do is apologize. We both know that I was never really that good at it anyway. Nicholson didn't want to shoot this scene and felt like it betrayed the character, I guess, was his rationale. Rafelson insisted. Yeah, I don't think it does. I think you feel like this is there, even without the scene. The scene confirms it. It's a one-sided conversation, and it, it reveals the softer underbelly of the character, where he sort of breaks down. Which you know is there, because if he was like a complete sociopath, like he would have never brought the girlfriend with him. Yeah. He would have just been like, I don't care, kill yourself. Yeah. It shows that he's not emotionally detached from what prompted him to leave in the first place, that he has feelings about it, 
and he is conflicted about those feelings and that they weigh on him and they sort of bubble out in this emotional outpouring here and he's not just this heartless asshole that that yeah asshole exterior is shielding the softer side of him but i think there's definitely something too he's only able to reveal this to someone who is completely unresponsive right wouldn't register yeah. it like if his dad was okay he says that yeah right he's basically like yeah. we couldn't have this conversation if you talked back i think he says something like that yeah yeah pretty cool sweater jacket combo here i think so nicholson yeah for the it, end of the it movie. fits the it fits the scenery i probably own stuff that's like that now yeah <laughs> hipster douchebag <laughs> Bobby leaves with Rayette after saying goodbye to only Tita, who demands that he say goodbye to her. And when they're in the car, Rayette's being particularly annoying, <laughs> singing her He's songs. Like, oh, man, we're back to this. They have a bench seat in the front seat of the car, and she is just right up next to him while he's oh, driving, no. basically like singing in his ear, like tugging on him. And again, it's hard to condone bobby's behavior but you're like oh my god i get but, it yeah <laughs> you don't so want to condone it but you do understand it yeah shortly into the trip they stop for gas and while rayette goes into the diner for coffee bobby just abandons her <laughs> hitching a ride yeah. on a truck headed north it's kind of a slow burn too i think it plays out in a way so that he has multiple moments where he could be like you know what i can't do this but he just keeps pushing forward with the plan Number one, I feel like it's a spur-of-the-moment decision, too, which is what makes it so great yeah. and so in character because, of course, he's not going to know that she's going to want to go inside and get coffee while he's right. supposedly pumping the gas or whatever. And then he's not going to know that there's going to be an available ride to hitch once he comes out of the bathroom. Yep. And then, two, it's so uncomfortable because oh, I know. the last shot lingers on and on and on, and the the acting credits come up for the movie yeah. while the action is still going on and the, behind the them. truck is driving away and she's just left at the gas station confused poor rayette wandering around this roadside station trying to figure out what happened oh uh, it's like the vanishing not really sure what just happened and then that's it and it's the end of the movie it's oh, such and it's, a, it's kind of haunting it fits the character and you're like yes this is what this guy would do but it, when you start thinking about the time continuing to pass, this would be such a weird thing to happen. You're like with this dude and then he's just gone. It would be like an Unsolved Mysteries episode. I do think that Rafelson altered the ending a little bit where I, I believe in the original script there was a line of dialogue where she says something like, you son of a bitch or something, something like acknowledging the situation more. Yeah. But they took that out and left it more ambiguous yeah and it's so heartbreaking and haunting it is like i said it's not like the bleakest thing you've ever seen at the end of a movie but it's just so weird the fact that it would just be left unsettled like that i think in the roger ebert review of this movie and he picked it as like one of the best movies of all time on like one of his lists or whatever and one of the best movies of the 70s and best movies of that year he wrote about the screening in new york and how at the end people just like stood and applauded this end <laughs> <laughs> and just how it was just a total zeitgeist film that people were just like so in on and just felt right for the time and it's sort of crazy that it's not remembered and held up 
in the same yeah. way that Easy Rider is or some other th- or The Graduate or I Midnight know. Cowboy. And it's just it's it's on that level. Absolutely. And it's definitely responsible for making Jack Nicholson a huge star. This yeah. was the breakout performance. He gets nominated for an Oscar. He would win it in a few years for Cuckoo's Nest. And you're off to the races, Chinatown, et cetera, for the next 30 years or more. Yeah, obviously I love the movie because I picked it, but it, it is something that's like, yeah, I didn't see this movie until I was in my 30s. I guess it's probably a good thing. It, it might have given me some bad ideas <laughs> in my 20s. But yeah, you're right. It's it's not something that's like, it doesn't seem like it's a household title like some of those other ones you listed. Yeah, and it should be a cornerstone in anybody interested in American film history, in my opinion, because it just came out right during the height of a huge cultural shift and we're talking that new wave American film that would go on with like your Coppola's, your De Palma's, your Spielberg's, George Lucas, all those guys, et cetera, were coming right up behind this. And this is part of that class that just completely changed what American movies were like because they had the artistic freedom. And that's a big thing you learn when you research this BBS and, and find out about this, company where it was so artist friendly it's almost unlike any other time period where for example Nicholson directed this movie that's in the box set called Drive he said Nicholson thought of himself as mostly a director before he became like an actor and a movie star yeah and there was a line of dialogue Karen Black is in that movie and she's getting fucked in a car (laughs) and she says I'm coming I'm coming and the UK censors were like you have to take that out or we're not going to play your movie. And Nicholson really didn't know what to do because the UK was like a lot of money potentially. I don't think Drive, he said, was a hit on any level. But he took it to the people running BBS. I don't have my notebook on me now. I forget the other guy's name besides Rafelson, like the, the more money guy, oh, yeah. the producer guy. And he said, like, well, they want me to cut this line. I don't want to cut it. I feel like it's important. I'm not... <laughs> I haven't seen Drive, he said, so I'm kind of curious as to why. Every line stays in, yeah. And the guy was just like, all right, well, then don't cut it. Who cares? We won't open in UK then. (laughs) It it was such a different mindset to how things are now, where you have huge studios bowing to China's demands of what gets censored and whatnot. It didn't last very long, but it was such a hugely influential period of American film that there are like courses at film schools that are taught just about the BBS years yeah these films more and more I want to get this box set now okay so that'll do it for five easy pieces if you haven't seen it I would recommend checking it out as soon as possible as would I a little bit of a lesser known movie in today's world than some of our more recent picks but we're trying to get a nice little balance going we are what are you doing what what Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Okay, so that brings us to recommendations. I don't have one, so go ahead. Okay, I have one. It might take the Razzie for worst recommendation oh, on my. the pod. I'm not sure. Yeah, which I know is always like a fight. Didn't you have one called like Eiffel Tower Love oh, Story or something? Oh, yeah, <laughs> Under the Eiffel Tower. Hey, it, it featured multiple people from Veep. So had never watched before, am watching now, into it. I would say there's no way 
I'll make it through all six seasons of this show. But streaming on Netflix, Glee. <laughs> <laughs> Did you oh, ever watch boy. this at all? I've seen probably like the first two seasons, I want to say. Yeah. I, it seems like people act like it falls off after like the third season or something. And there's no way I'll be able to stick with it. But I love the performances. And I also think it's shockingly crass, some of the humor that's in it. Yeah, like, I, I do say vaguely stuff that I wouldn't that. expect. Yeah, I, you're right. This is probably the most. <laughs> I might have to just cut this whole part of the podcast. Go ahead. Just act like we didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. All right. So Glee, and you can watch that on Netflix. I really didn't have time to get into. Yeah. Recommendations. That might be my last one for the year. The haunting thing with Glee, of course, is that like so many people. Well, are that's dead. the weird. That's actually what led me to start watching it, really. <laughs> Because it's like these people are like in the news as being dead all the time. <laughs> no, it is crazy. Yeah. I enjoyed it for a little moment in time. I thought Jane Lynch was funny. I like some of the, the oh, girls yeah. on it and stuff. There's, de- I mean, there's definitely a bunch of the characters that are like super hard to watch. But I don't know. I'm enjoying myself so far. I, I don't think it'll last long, but. It was kind of like when I tried to rewatch Dawson's Creek, and after like five episodes, I was like, yeah, I don't know. I might have to tap out on this. All right. So that'll do it for Five Easy Pieces. Follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podbean. Give us a rating and review. Thanks for listening. We're coming up next week with another Matt pick. Oh, wow. Just crossing these movies off the list so we can get them over with. That's right. <laughs> Plow forward. No, Five Easy Pieces was definitely one I thought that we would be doing at some point. So when I saw that on your list of choices to, you were like, to get done, I was like, yeah, we'll, we'll get this on the schedule. Because I would say that our podcast is primarily 80s, 90s into 2000s and 2010s but mostly movies from our lifetime i would love to mix in more 60s and 70s and maybe even a few earlier than that just every now and then more and more loving that era i just am certainly not an expert on it no it's a journey that we're all it is a journey yeah it's a journey all right so thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon
my gosh, what a quinky dinky. Look, we're sitting at the same table. Tammy, this table is reserved. A guy traded me his seat for a peek and a squeeze. That's my boob and my butt, respectively. Remember that, Ron?